Good morning. Great to be uh, with you again. And uh, again, a very uh, warm welcome to you, whether you're joining us here uh, in person or you're uh, joining us via the live stream. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, would you uh, turn to Revelation uh, 21? If you don't, certainly would encourage you to uh, turn, at least in your worship guide, to Revelation uh, 21. Uh, coming this morning to the penultimate chapter in our series as we're working our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, if you've been a part of Redeemer for some time, you'll know that we uh, looked at this very chapter uh, just a little over a, a year ago. And so this morning we're actually going to go over really some very uh, fresh and familiar ground, if you like. But, but I trust that in doing so, uh, it will be um, of much benefit and blessing to us. But, but it's Good News Day uh, in our series, finally. I mean, we have been uh, laboring uh, in these uh, passages of judgment for the last few weeks now and, and thinking, wow, this is pretty uh, weighty, uh, some heavy stuff uh, here. And, and we now step out from underneath the clouds into the bright sunshine of the new creation. And it's a glorious moment in the book as a whole. And some of you have been waiting weeks for that. And, and the passage that we uh, begin with today, the start of Revelation 21, is, is really quite famous. Uh, so much so that you've probably heard it, even if you're unfamiliar uh, with or have never before read the book of Revelation. The, the chances are you might well have heard, and then I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You may have well heard that. It's often read at funerals. Uh, it's mentioned as the ship is sinking in the Titanic. It's, it's a, a very famous bit of writing, and it describes the glory of the new creation. But the weird thing is, say if you are a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, you may assume that the Bible finishes with a long description of the coming new creation. But actually, there's only eight verses of it in this passage. And having described the new creation for eight verses, the writer then goes on to describe the church for the next 20. So chapter 21 is a glorious description of the beauty and wonder of the church. Not just of the new creation in which the church will live for eternity with Jesus. And so the, 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 the coming new world is indeed glorious, but in this book here, it actually serves, if you like, as the backdrop for the wedding between the lamb and the bride. And, and many of us probably don't really think that way about the end of the Bible. You know, a couple of, a couple of months ago, I had the, the privilege of, of being a part of, of Sam and Evelyn's wedding. And, and the setting for their wedding was just this, this glorious backdrop. I mean, the, the scenery was stunning. It was way up in, uh, in Potter Valley, a wonderful evening uh, in late September. Beautiful location outdoors. You know, just this incredible setting for a wedding. And you were sort of taken in by the beauty of the place. You know, the surrounding hills and the trees and, uh, and the ravine that, that bordered one side. But I can tell you that that wasn't the main focus. In fact, if I had gone up to the groom, Sam, and said, wow, can you believe this place? Look, I mean, look at this place. And I'd just gone on and on and on about this backdrop and, and setting. I think after a while, he would have said to me, no, 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 no. Come, let me show you the bride. 
Right? You see, the purpose of the backdrop of a wedding is actually to glorify and present in as much splendor the bride. It's not to detract from or to act as a, a rival to her beauty. It's actually as a way of promoting the beauty of the bride. The setting is not the main point. And so when you read Revelation 21 and you think about this new glorious world, and we will, We've got to read that, mindful of the fact that it is there as the backdrop to the unveiling of the church, the love of Jesus' life, who he then spends the rest of the chapter describing. She's beautiful and she's glorious. And I said, uh, when we looked at this a year ago, said that one of the most common storylines that you'll find in, in movies is the storyline of the ugly duckling. Uh, you've surely seen movies with that storyline in it. The, the ugly duckling, you think, oh, who's that? And then, and then they turn out to be a, a beautiful swan by the end of the story. And that happens in a lot of movies. And you've surely uh, seen some of them. And they all have the same premise. The movie's about usually... It's a woman, but there's, there's a sort of abrasive or awkward or slightly dumpy hero who turns out to be this gorgeous woman by the end of the movie. And you know at the start of the movie that's what she will be. And that then affects the way that you view her in the here and now when she's still not very attractive. And so you meet Anne Hathaway at the start of the movie and you think, yeah, she, she's going to be a stunner at the end. But for now, people are reacting to her just for what she is now. And we get to look at the movie going, I know, I know just what, not just what she is, but what she will be. And that creates the drama of the entire movie. And the ultimate example of an ugly duckling story is the story of the church. The destiny of the church is to be revealed as the bride of Jesus Christ. Beautiful, radiant, glorious. And we're going to see that in a moment. But in the meantime, right now, she is often awkward, abrasive, compromised, slightly unattractive, a bit dumpy perhaps, and a bit of a mess. Does that describe anyone around you right now? Well, that's the reality, isn't it? We, we know how the story ends. We know the ugly duckling will become a beautiful swan. And that future beauty enables us to relate to her now in the present with a sense of hope and dignity of who she will be. As C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, his book, The Screwtape Letters, it's this fascinating thing where there's sort of a, a senior demon trying to coach a junior demon uh, how to mess up Christians. And the, and the senior demon is writing to the junior demon saying, y you've got to get people to obsess over the problems in the church now and make sure that they don't ever look at the future beauty of the church. Keep their eyes off that. And there's this comment he makes. He says, you've got to make sure that the Christians look at their neighbors in the pew instead of the future reality of the church. And then he says, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient, that's the Christian, will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. 
In other words, the job of the devil is to say, don't look at the future glories of the church. Just look at the the mess that's around you this morning. Demons want you to obsess over the duckling and forget the swan. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus wants you to see the swan. And through seeing the swan's beauty, to be able to love and, and, and give your life to being a part of and serving the duckling. So let's read Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of, wa- of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God, and he'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measures its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the seventh amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and they will be and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what's detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of God. The chapter begins with the last word on the new creation. And it ends with the last word on the church. And so we'll start with the new creation because we need to look at that, but actually remembering that most of the focus of the chapter is on the glory of the church. And when we look at the new creation, I find it fascinating as you read that description that it mostly describes the new world that God will make when when the church is raised, when, 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 when the resurrection of the body happens, when creation itself will be renewed. And as John describes it, he mainly describes it by telling what is not there. That's his way of trying to communicate the splendor of the new creation. He says, first of all, that there is no sea. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and the sea was no more. Which at first might might seem like an odd thing to to say, but the sea actually in Jewish thought up to this point represents chaos and darkness and death. It's a place of monsters and people disappearing and shipwrecks and danger. And all of that chaos Uh, primordial rebelling against God, danger, that's all been abolished. It doesn't mean, by the way, that there's going to be no body of water in the new creation as if everything is just land or even worse, just the desert. That's not true at all because as as we continue reading on into chapter 22, we realize that there's a river flowing from the throne out to water the land. So this is a world that's full of water as well. And that might be great a great encouragement to those of you who are looking to 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 you know for, to 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 spend your spend your time in eternity surfing and snorkeling in the new creation. It's full of water. It's unthinkably glorious. It doesn't mean the sea in the sense of a body of water is gone. It means that the sea in the sense of rebellious, dangerous, chaotic forces rebelling against God have been subdued, subdued and silenced. There's no sea. There's also no sadness. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's something incredibly intimate about gently comforting a young child by wiping away their tears. You know, just to hold them close and say, it's going to be okay. And you just wipe away tears. There is something very beautiful about doing that. And God, as our Father, will do that for us on that day. But He will then do what earthly parents cannot do. What we cannot do for our young children. He will not only wipe away the tears that have come but he will ensure that they never come again. He will say that there is nothing that you will ever need to, be, need to cry about ever again, except perhaps joy. 
There is nothing left to make you sad. I have defeated it all at the cross. There will be no sadness. There will also be no sin. And this to me is a baffling thought. Like, like what is the world like if we remove sin from it? I mean, there's no, as we just read, no cowardice, murder, adultery, deceit, sorcery, idolatry, or any sin. Right? John is listing those things as a way of saying, this is a comfort. The world that is currently plagued by those things won't have, uh, won't have any of them anymore. And it's almost hard for me to imagine a world without sin because I'm so used to it in the fabric of what we are. Quoting Augustine, as I often like to do, the great African uh, philosopher, theologian, Augustine said this. He said, the souls in bliss will still possess free will on that day, though sin will have no part to tempt them. They will be more free than ever, so free, in fact, from all delight in sinning as to find in not sinning an unfailing source of joy. Augustine is saying, the fact that there is no sin won't mean we're less free. It'll mean we're more free because we'll be free to do whatever we truly want and we're made for rather than the things that sin and the devil and our flesh hoodwink us into thinking we want but we but actually don't deliver there'll be no sin and then there'll be no death and death shall be no more i mean it's just unimaginable this is this is the hardest one for us because we are so bound up with the concept of death, we can't really understand things like time or experience or pain or anything without it. I mean, time is really a measurement of the proximity to our own death. That, that's why we count time so diligently. And it's really hard for us to imagine a world without death. Someone might ask, hang on, so if there is no death, well, does that mean that I could jump from the top of, of this building from the very highest point and land on the concrete and I wouldn't be hurt. Yeah. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to imagine a world in which the laws of physics still function and people don't die. But death then, on that day, death will be as unimaginable as life without death seems now. And there will come a day when we'll be looking back to our current selves going, I had, a, I had a weird dream last night. I just felt like there, there, there used to be this world. I, I, it kind of vaguely wafted through my dream and out again. But there used to be a world in which there used to be these things called hospitals and the smell of antiseptic. And there, and there were things called ambulances and there were things called funerals. And, and it just didn't really make any sense. And all sorts of other evils, I just... I, I just can't relate to as ever having, was, was that real or is that just something we're, we made up? You and I will be in that day as unable to imagine death as we currently are unable to imagine a world without it. But the new creation isn't just defined by what's not there. It's also defined by what, by what is there. We're also told what is there. And we are told that there is going to be there the presence of God. Verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will be in his presence forever. 
And that matters far more than an eternity of surfing and snorkeling. Right? Jesus will be there. God will be there unmediated by any distance or clouds or any physical distance. He will be there in person and we will be in his presence forever. There'll be presence. There'll be renewal as well. Behold, I am making all things new. Verse 5. Right? It's not just that, that you will be new, new or that I'll be new. All things will be new. America will be made new. Imagine the redemption of America. Imagine what it would be like for this city to be made new and cleansed from sin so that there's not a trace, right? Anywhere you walk in this city and there's not a trace of evil, sin, death, anything. All of the, the good bits have been purified and renewed and all of the bad bits have been destroyed and removed. What is it like to live in a city like that? All things are made new. The planets are made new. The universe will be made new. We only get to see one sunrise. God sees, gets to see billions because every planet has a sunrise. Now, imagine being able to see them. Imagine a universe that is burst into life. Will there be life on all the planets rather than just one? Who knows? Will we like the risen Lord Jesus be able to teleport from place to place without having to walk or drive there? Who knows? I certainly hope so. There'll be presence. There'll be renewal. There'll be satisfaction as well. Verse 6 is lovely, isn't it? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's this wonderful idea that every longing we have will be satisfied on that day. That there will come, that we will come with our thirst and find it fully satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that lovely line at the end of the last battle by C.S. Lewis where they conclude and they, they see the new creation and they say, ah, the reason why we, we, we used to love the old Narnia so much is because it sometimes looked a little bit like this. That's the feeling of satisfaction of relief, of, of, of the thirst being quenched that we will all experience. And of course, inheritance, because he says in verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or my daughter. So there is this glorious portrait of the new creation here that we, we would do well just to spend time reflecting on and praying through, meditating on. It's pretty remarkable, a vision of the future. But as, as, as we've said, John's primary focus isn't even that. That for John isn't even the biggest show in town. He then says, come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, in verse 9. Verses 10 and 11, then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare, a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now what are we supposed to understand about the, the church from this description? Because it's quite stunning. 
Well, we're supposed to see that the church, as we've said, is the beautiful swan. The church is beautiful. It's so beautiful that John pictures become kind of confused and sort of tumble into one another, right? So in verse 18, he says, the city was pure gold like clear glass, at which point anyone who's ever looked through a window and seen the gold in their ring goes, that's not a thing. You can't have pure gold clear as glass. Gold is like the opposite of, of, of glass. Glass is, is, is transparent. Gold is this devi, uh, dense, heavy, substantial thing. How on earth can you, you have something that's pure gold, that's, that's glass-like? And John's saying, yeah, I know, I know. I, I don't know how to describe it either. And if you were there, he says, you wouldn't have done a better job. Because the glory of the church is indescribable in its beauty. There, there's something about the church that is going to be transparently glorious as well as being deeply rich and weighty and precious in, in that sense. It's unimaginable. But church will be beautiful. The church will be varied and multicolored as well. There will be great diversity. In the church, and I feel like we get tastes of that here on earth. I feel like we get to, we get fragments of it. We get to see little fragments, little tastes here of the diverse people of God that, that there will one day be gathered. We hear in this text, don't we, that the city walls have 12 foundations studied, studded with precious stones that shine in a bewildering variety of colors. So you have blue sapphire, green emerald red jasper, orange carnelian, purple amethyst, and then you have pure light shining through the middle of it, refracting into, a, 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 into billions of subcolors right across the spectrum. The church is diverse and, 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 and multicolored and studded with the jewels of all kinds. The church is also perfect. We read that the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are all equal, right? So this is a perfect cube. Just like the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple was a perfect cube. Like this is the perfect temple dwelling place of God. And in case you're wondering how far 12,000 stadia is, this perfect cube, the city, the church would cover half of the continental United States and reach 260 times the height of Mount Everest. The church is perfectly proportioned and perfectly full of the glory of God. It's complete as well, not just in space, but also in time. So the gates we've heard here are named for the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundations are named for the, the apostles. And so you have the old as well as the new. And you have the old, which is the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and you have the new, which is the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the new is the foundation for the old. Which means that just as you know, you and I are here on the legacy and strength of the faith of people like Moses and Elijah and Hannah and David, in that day, we will worship together the same Savior with them. And actually, the, the new will serve as the foundation for their faith, just as their heritage has proved the, the foundation for ours. The church is complete. The church also will be holy. I saw 
no temple in the city, John says, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, that doesn't maybe sound like much to us because we don't have very many temples around here, but in the ancient world, you couldn't really be a city without, without uh, you know, unless you had a temple. That's what a city, uh, a city was. It was a place with a temple to the God. Temples were, were holy space. But in the new creation, you don't need holy space because all of space is holy. The entire cosmos has become sacred space, has become the most holy place. God lives among her everywhere. So you don't need a temple because a temple would imply that there was somewhere where God was not and there isn't. The church as well is radiant. Verse 23, and the church has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. So the church is, is glowing with light all the time, shining out light that the nations can walk by. And finally, the church is incorruptible. Verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day. But then we read, they'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. And to me, maybe because I'm a pastor, this is one, one of the ones that strikes me the most deep, deeply to think that the church's doors will always be open and yet nothing unclean will ever come in. And the reason it strikes me, I think, is because I'm very aware, and many of us are, that working in the church as she is now, while we still have the ugly duckling rather than the glorious swan, the, the church in the present time is always some degree caught up with a tension between inclusiveness and purity, right? You get churches that are very, very pure. Nothing unholy ever comes in, but they're not inclusive. And then you get churches that are very, very into everyone's welcome, but in the end, it becomes very difficult to maintain purity in a context where everyone can do anything they want. And you manage that tension. We manage that tension actually in our own lives. And we manage that tension in the church. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, as we will in a few moments, we are aware of the difference between those who are effectively invited and whether or not we are pure. And we always feel that tension. It, it works out in all kinds of parts of our life. But on that day, that tension will have gone. There will be no such thing as, as a tension between inclusion and purity because the gates of the city will be open and nothing unclean will ever get in. That tension will disappear forever. And that is the destiny of the people of God, to be this perfectly inclusive and perfectly pure, beautiful, multicolored, perfect, complete, holy, radiant, and incorruptible city in which we will live with Jesus forever. And the whole picture is breathtaking, defying the, the, the brushwork of the greatest artist as John uses superlative after superlative to, to, to convey the, the pure beauty of what he saw. This city, the church, is beautiful because it has been given the glory of God and because it is the bride that reflects 
her bridegroom's glory as the moon reflects that of the sun. It's a city fit to be the Lord's eternal dwelling place, and it's made fit through the blood of the Lamb. It's a glorious city. It's a beautiful vision. And, and John leaves us in, verse, in chapter 21 with that thought. John wants us to have our eyes trained on that marvelous reality and not lose sight of it while we're dealing with the duckling here and now. Right? Screw tape in C.S. Lewis's writing, screw tape doesn't want you to do that. Screw tape wants you to obsess over the duckling. The devil doesn't want you to see the glorious end time church. He wants you to give all your attention to focusing on the annoying things that Christians do now. The challenges of ordinary church life. Again, I'm a pastor. I know what many of them are. This is a large part of what I've done for nearly 25 years to engage with some of those challenges and to be honest without meaning to, to create some of those problems for other people. And I know I, I've done that and you know, and I know that you know what they are. But the devil wants you to obsess so much over those failings that you never get to see the swan. He wants you to obsess not just over the failings of the church now, but over the church throughout history as well and say, and again, I know church history well. I know what a lot of those failings are. I know the people we've burned. I know about the Inquisition. I know about slavery. I know about the Crusades and the anti-Semitism. All of the church's greatest hits. And the devil wants me and wants you to only see that and never to notice the glory of who the church will one day be. The devil wants the church to get smaller and weaker and keep us in a spiral of sin, followed by guilt, followed by apology and retreat, followed by more compromise, and then back to sin. The angel in this text wants John to focus, and Jesus wants us to focus, not uh, just on the church as she is, though we have to live through that and work at it, but also at the church as she will be, clear as the sun, fair as the moon, terrible as an army with banners. Listen, the church is the ultimate ugly duckling, right? She looks messy and dirty and compromised now. But she will be beautiful beyond imagining. And with that future in mind, we are called to express who we will be in the way that we live now. We're called to live out that future in our present as far as we're able. And, 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 and that doesn't mean giving up on the church. And it doesn't mean ignoring her faults. But it does mean refusing to be cynical and despairing or hopeless. And instead be shaped by our certainty of who we will one day be. The spotless and radiant and beautiful bride of Christ. And we now treat her not just according to who she is, but who she will be on that day. And so the church's job is to witness to that future bridal city and the future world that the Lord Jesus is making. Our, our witness, our purpose in the world in many ways is to draw the attention of the world to that new world and that new city that God is making and that will descend from heaven to earth. And we do that in a whole bunch of ways, through evangelism, through prayer, through, through worship, but we also do it through communion. 
And in many ways, what we're going to do now as we come to the Lord's uh, table is to express this future hope in, in very practical ways to one another and to the watching world. See, as we, as we share in the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge two things, many others as well, but two things in the context of this message. We acknowledge that we are not perfect now. Right? We acknowledge our ducklingness. It's an opportunity, it's an opportunity to confess our sins, uh, to repent, and to look for grace, knowing that his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But we also acknowledge our swanness. We also acknowledge that the story doesn't stop here, that we are destined for the wedding supper. And so Paul says in the context of communion, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a future hope in the Lord's supper, not just a, a looking back or even a, a looking in at our sin. And that means that communion is not just a moment of confession, but it's a moment of thanksgiving. The word Eucharist, which is the word that many people in the worldwide church use for this meal, is a, is a word meaning thanksgiving, it, 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 thankfulness. And the Lord's Supper is, is a Eucharist. It's a thanksgiving moment, not just a confession moment. As in it's serious, very serious. That this, that this is the blood, the body and blood of Jesus. It's serious, but it's not gloomy. Right? It's, it's like a wedding is serious rather than like a funeral is serious. It's not a funeral wake we participate in the Lord's Supper. It's rather, it's a wedding supper. And this is an invitation to say, because you have confessed your sins and recognize that you've fallen short, you are now invited to come and receive the grace of God, the body and blood of Jesus given for you. We confess our sins and then we approach the throne of grace with boldness to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. and We're going to leave our seats and we're going to come to the table of God. We're going to come and we're going to receive the life-giving, glorious gifts of the Lord Jesus Christ to us in his church. We are celebrating the wedding supper of the Lamb ahead of time. The world is going to be renewed, right? The swan will come. The bride will be perfect. So if you are a repentant believer, whatever your background is this morning, then come and be welcomed to Jesus Christ. Let's pray before we come to the table this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the glories of, of, of who we will one day be. We thank you for the future new creation. But we confess that we have fallen short in so many ways of that future identity and purity we will have. Lord, we have sinned against you and against one another in the things that we thought and said. And even in the things we haven't done. And we're sorry. We repent. And we pray that for Jesus' sake, you would forgive us all our sins and you would enable us now to come to your uh, table with joy and receive the goodness of, of who you are to us in the bread and the wine, in the body and blood of Jesus.
poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.